I created some new material. It may seem like it was old material. Some of it is old material. I discovered that uh, this room gets used so much and gets cleaned then that many times, all my handouts got thrown away. So I had to recreate it all this morning really fast. So forgive me on that, but this one that's back there is actually now kind of concisely puts together a second missionary journey. So there's stuff on both sides. So it starts with the we passages and then goes to Philippi and then moves on to Thessalonica, Berea, and Corinth, or to Athens, sorry. The big one in the second missionary journey is Corinth. We're going to spend a little time there. So I'm hoping we might walk through this today because we'll do the Philippi. This is the same one, isn't it? Nope. Now this is a new one. Here, here, I got, I got a couple. See, I got you covered up here. <laughs> I got you covered. Thank I got you. a couple extras. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I'm sorry, everyone, for this confusion. But I came in this morning looking for my other handouts, and they were gone. Gone. Thank you. You're welcome. Did you get one? Good. All right. There's some extra copies. And it has on the back of it. It has the three missionary journeys, and then Paul's final journey to Rome. Got it? That's the one. So it's. Um, because in the second missionary journey, a, a huge bulk of it really takes place in Corinth. And not that, I mean, obviously the journey itself covers many, many, many miles, starting in Antioch and then, you know, you know, remember they got stopped going to Asia. A vision of a man from Macedonia, the Spirit of Jesus stops them, gets a vision from Macedonia, come and help us. So they head to Macedonia, Philippi. That's where we're going to spend our time today. So they're in Philippi. I gave you a background on the city last week. It, it just a, it's a hugely significant city, but it did not have Jews in it. Not many Jews at all. So there's no synagogue. And so the way the church develops there is slightly different. It's a house church um, by Lydia. So Lydia is the leader of this, um, at least the hostess of the house church. We really don't know what role she plays. Um, in, the, in, the, in the apostolic, in the book of Acts, we have... Um, when we ask about like how women are involved, Lydia is a fascinating example, but we don't know much more. We're pretty sure that she was a significant financial contributor and opened her home to the church and, and hosted it there. But we don't know. She may have had more of a role than that. She may not have. We just don't know. We really don't know who the leader of the church in Philippi was. We don't have testimony of that. Um, and then we have other instances, you know, Priscilla and Aquila. Those are two fascinating characters because they're tent, it appears that they're tent makers and Paul shares in their, in their uh, business. So when, there are times when he stays for a long time, months, even years. Corinth is one where he stays over a year in Corinth. And Priscilla and Aquila are actually Paul's teachers. I mean, they're, they're the ones that teach him the faith. And many people suspect that Aquila, I mean, uh, that Aquila the man, was really very consumed with the business. And Priscilla was the student of the scriptures and really had these wonderful conversations with Paul. So it's interesting. Philip also, who is one of the uh, deacons, remember that? Philip is a deacon who's in that second wave of leadership. So you have the apostles who Jesus breathes on, receive the Holy Spirit, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. We take that as a significant part of the pastoral office and how the church is founded and so forth. But then there's this next wave of leaders, right, that come along, which you are deacons, deacons and deaconesses. 
And so Paul and the apostles are handling the word of God and prayer, and they're saying, geez, we're running around waiting on tables. Maybe we should stay focused in on, on Scripture. That, by the way, you guys, let me give you a great example. That you all, and I know it's very, it's, it, I'm so grateful, I should say it more often. You guys always take down these chairs and I never say anything. But for, for a year, I took them all down. Right? You know, I mean, when we first started Children's Church. So then I got up enough guts to say, hey, would you guys help me? And so, because I hate asking people, I, this is a thing I really dislike in church, is when people who are in leadership won't do, the, do anything. Nothing should be beneath the, the, the I'm not a CEO, but I'm going to use this. No, nothing should be below the owner. Nothing should be below the CEO or the pastor. Nothing. I'll give you my example on that. So we did a building project in our church in Federal Way, uh, Washington, Seattle. So I was the assistant pastor, pastor of outreach, and I had a senior pastor. And so um, he said to our team one day, because we were about to shut down the old sanctuary and moving everything to the gym. So we were going to worship in the gym during the construction. So he said, hey, we have to figure this out, how we're going to set that up. So um, let's figure it out together as a team and so show up on Saturday or whatever well, we'll be there at 8 and we'll set it up so we show up at 8 he's not there we wait around 8.15 so we go well, let's figure this out so we start setting up chairs he shows up at 11 o'clock and goes nice work and then leaves and at that moment I said right I said I will never do that I will never do that and so if it's pushing a broom or if it's taken out a bag of garbage or whatever it is that's what you do. So we do it together, right? That's what we do. So thank you. Because that allows me to do other ministry. So when you do help in those ways, and I have to be careful because sometimes I will do things that take me away from the things I'm uniquely gifted to do. And that's the thing you've got to find out with your team too, is you need to free the members of your team up to do the things only they can do. There are, and, and while this may sound, I don't mean this sound prideful or weird, it's just the role I'm in. There's some things only I can do. And I should do those things, right? So I should, that should be my first energy. But that was the apostolic model. So Philip is one of those deacons, and his daughters are prophetesses in the church. It's very interesting. It's just a fascinating thing. And other women who serve in service areas and so forth. So they do it together, it appears. We don't have a lot of those those things. So Lydia in Philippi, and then we believe the jailer who we're going to look at, the jailer and his family join this church also, so that they're part of it. Some church tradition has said that that jailer in Philippi may have become the pastor or like the elder of that church. We don't know. It was, scripture does not, has been, is silent on that. But clearly, it's a gathering of people of all socioeconomic groups, backgrounds, and so forth, right? I mean, he's a Roman a prison guard. I don't know if he's a soldier or not, or but, but he has a household, a family, and so forth. Has a pension, all of those kinds of things. And then Lydia, who is a wealthy uh, businesswoman in town. So then from Philippi, then we go to Thessalonica. So they're there in Philippi, and Philippi is a very dear congregation to Paul. When you read his letter to the Philippians, it's just filled with affection. Um, it's filled with a tenderness that's a little different than some of the others. So that's kind of a neat thing to know. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this study with you, because I think as we go through the life of Paul and you see where he came from, it gives you insight into the letters he wrote to these places. So that when you read these letters, they give you a little different sense of that, because always as students of Scripture, 
right? Now, this is always our hermeneutic. We believe that every word in the book is true and that every word of the book speaks to God's people throughout all ages. But as discerning, thoughtful Christians, we should always ask, what true thing is, the, is God saying in there? What did he say to the Philippians? What did, what did he say to Paul, you know, on the road to Damascus? And, what did he say to Isaiah and so forth? And what was Isaiah saying to those people? Like I'm putting my sermon together for 11 o'clock. We're doing something cool at 11 o'clock this year. Cool. It's not like weird. It's just interesting. So, you know, we do nine readings and carols and interspersed with that, communion and so forth. So Jim and I are splitting it. I'm doing the first, I'm doing a message on the first half. So I'm doing the Old Testament. And then he does the New Testament. And the thing that strikes me about those Old Testament prophecies is we think those words are so old. And they are. They're from millennia ago. Some of them, right? The prophecy to Adam and Eve that Moses records for us, and Isaiah and Micah, all those. They're essential. But think about this for a minute. They weren't old words to those people, right? Uh, to me, that just strikes me. They were absolutely brand new, fresh. That was a new thing that they were saying to them. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And, you know, you can imagine them all, ooh, I'm looking out for that, right? I'm going to be on the lookout, so forth. So I'm kind of excited about that. And then Jim's going to take how those words became flesh, you know. So anyway, I'm excited about it. I'm not excited about anything. We can tell it. All right, so they go from Thessalonica to Berea. And actually, interestingly, Thessalonica today in modern Greece is the second largest city. So it wasn't at that time. Athens still largest. And then Thessalonica is the largest city today. Berea. Fabulous example, one you should highlight in your Bibles when we get there. And then, of course, we get to Athens, which still, even though it's probably waning somewhat, is the philosophical center of the Roman Empire. Okay? It's where new ideas, new things that juxtapose <coughs> and bump into culture and politics are debated there, and they still are. So we get that scene. So let's pray, and let's jump into it. Father God, we thank you for you sending your son to us that you call us into your family and you invite us to call upon you as a dear father. And so, Lord, in sending your son, you knew what that would cost and you knew what that would become. And to entrust your, our Savior into the arms of a peasant couple to announce their birth to shepherds, to honor the most lowly by becoming the most lowly. Uh, Lord, you honor us all and you give us reason for hope and for grace. So Lord, I know Paul embraced that and rejoiced in that. The chief of sinners, you redeemed him and called him to be an apostle. And so Lord, uh, continue to encourage us with your promise and your word. Strengthen us in this season. Give us hearts filled with celebration and gratitude. In Jesus' name. All right, Acts 16. Let's go there because we have broached it, and we see um, we went to the slave girl last time. Any questions, you guys? I just keep rolling along. Anything you wanted to ask? Okay. So we have, uh, so, so we have the uh, spirit, right? We're about verse 16, chapter 16, verse 16 and following. And remember, they haul off Paul and Silas and not Luke and Timothy, probably because Paul and Silas look Jewish. Okay, they probably are dressed Jewish. The other two are, are Greek names and may have been not dressed quite as Jewishly. Um, and so they're the ones thrown into prison. We can imagine that Luke and Timothy probably are not silent, probably doing some advocating for them. Um, but we don't have that in the text. 
but they, it's only Paul and Silas. So let's look in uh, verse 23. Okay. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. This means these are um, significant prisoners. Okay, so you're in the inner cell so that no one from the outside can contact <coughs> you and you're in stocks. Okay, so probably iron, you know, metal stocks that they're in. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. That's interesting too, isn't it? Isn't that? That's like interesting. What does that tell you? There's just a little hint there, Bible students, of other things. Power of the word is powerful. Okay, good. Power of the word is, is powerful. What brings about the earthquake? We don't know. Them calling upon the name of God? We don't know if it's God himself initiating that. Just We don't know if God's using the natural order of events uh, to his own glory and benefit. You know, don't we don't was, know. I don't think it was coincidence. But we don't think there are coincidences. <laughs> we think that God uses uh, his created order as well as his word and promise and his people, right? But this tells you something else. What are they doing? They're singing, they're singing hymns. I mean, this has to tell you something about worship in the early church, right? And uh, don't get me wrong, this is not a contemporary traditional classic question at all. They're singing. They're songs they know. So there are a certain number of songs that they're singing. Could they be psalms that were, in fact, for Christians in particular, very pointed, right? Let's list them. Psalm 2, Psalm 8. 110. 110, right? I mean, songs which the early church immediately confessed were about Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Um, it could be early Christian songs. You go to Philippians chapter 2. We're absolutely convinced that that whole passage, and it's written in your English Bibles as verse. Um, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. You know, that whole thing. We think that is. We think that the creedal statements in 1 Corinthians are probably things which are set to song. And, and you know why this is. It's how you taught your children. Yes. And it's how you taught people who didn't read. Now, to be honest, let's be careful. Very literate population in the Roman Empire. Very literate. If you wanted to conduct commerce or if you wanted to worship in the synagogue, I mean, <laughs> think about it. In our family growing up, in our family, the first books, the first things children like my parents and grandparents all heard were Bible stories. Those were the, and those were the first books they read, right? You know, those kinds of things, so that they could read Scripture. Same in a Jewish household. You were taught to read so that you could read Torah. That was the idea. So a literate population, but for children not yet reading, how did you teach the faith? How did you remember? So hymns. I just think that's an interesting thing. They're sitting there singing songs that they knew. So we don't think they were making them up on the fly. We think that they were singing songs and hymns, praise songs uh, to God. And in fact, the book of Colossians, a letter to the Colossians, Paul says that too in chapter 3, you know, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I love that delineation because when, uh, in those years when we went through worship wars over, you know, can you have a set of drums in the sanctuary? You know, I mean, that was the war. We had those, thank God those seem to be in our rearview mirror um, because how you do it, should not matter nearly so much as why and what, right? Why you're doing it and what you're saying. And so if you're saying the same thing, but you're, you happen to be using a set of drums, it should probably be okay. Probably. 
So it's interesting, though, that even in Colossians, Psalms, right, Old Testament, chanting probably, some kind of verse, back and forth verse, hymns, right? We're guessing those hymns are things that we call hymns and spiritual songs, things that you hear on Caleb, you know. We think that all of those are listed there, yeah. Do you think, um, I, like, I'm curious your perspective on praising and singing hymns like is an act of spiritual warfare. Um, uh, um, tell me the setting. Well, I'm just, you know, I mean, they're praising God and some, something happened, right? Right. And it, it just seems like it does, it, there is a place for it, and it helps us battle, you know, yes. the enemy. I hear what you're saying. Yes, I agree completely. Absolutely. In fact, I would say it this way. Here's always the caution, and I say this a lot through the book of Acts, prescriptive or descriptive. So it's certainly descriptive. In other words, this is not the formula for getting out of prison. Right. Right? In right. other words, if you are unjustly jailed or falsely accused as a Christian or you're being persecuted for your faith, to simply go in here and say, hey, what did they do? And then we'll just do that and it'll happen. That's not, so it's not prescriptive. However, having said that, I think to follow their model and to do that as an action of faith and confidence that God, in fact, is the one in charge, if you look on your notes, the bottom of the one of the left-hand column, true citizenship and true freedom. That's really the topic here that we're going to talk about. I mean, where what these stories in Philippi are talking about are those things. How do you gain true citizenship and how are you truly free? Because think of the setting. In Philippi, retired soldiers, many of whom had earned their citizenship through their service in the military. You have Lydia, a woman, right, God-fearer, who is able to conduct a business. It's a little bit unusual, but able to conduct a business in a very lucrative one and hosts the early church in defiance of the persecution. So she almost certainly is not a citizen, right? She is, so you have her, and then you have the jailer who, with the walls falling down, you find here, right, he's about to take his own life. And you, many of you know this. Let me just say it very quickly. The reason he's about to take his life is he saves his pension for and the honor of his family. That's the deal. If, if, because you had, it's like that joke, you know, you had one job, right? You had one job. Keep the prisoners in prison. Okay, so if they get out, your life is forfeit. It, seriously, this is very significant. We know this. It applies to the guards at the tomb as well. So lest we think that the, you know, people actually say this in their out loud voice that the disciples came and overwhelmed the guards, you know, like fought off the Roman guards. They actually say it. <laughs> I mean, it's always funny. People are like, oh, that's an interesting opinion. No, some opinions we just go, you're an idiot. Okay? <laughs> I mean, sometimes, you know, my, your patience is exhausted. When they actually suggest some of these things, like, like every once in a while you'll read in our own paper, well, you know, we really don't know that Jesus Christ really exists in history, you know? And you just go, like, nobody says that. <laughs> Okay, so you clearly have some bone to pick somewhere. So it's that kind of thing. So he is saving his pension and his honor of his family. So his family will be cared for by taking his own life. Think Japanese culture, right? A little bit. So, um, so that's the situation there. So yes, Elaine, absolutely, as a formula to say, is this a, is this a valuable, healthy thing to do, which both builds our faith puts, and also proclaims our faith as well. That's one of the neatest things about singing, isn't it? 
And some of you love to sing. Some of you hate to sing. Some of you think, you know, whatever. My son was one of those, if you can believe this. Have I told you this story? We sent him to high school. He had to do something. We said, you must do something in high school. Okay? He's not an athlete. Didn't do that stuff. I mean, you know, not for lack of trying. Trust me. But he just wasn't there. So I'm going, you got to do something. Well, I don't remember. You know. So we're not letting you come on home and play video games every day. Okay? So, so we made him join the choir. General choir. Ninth grade. And Mrs. Bryan, Joyce Bryan, was the first year teacher. So after the second day, Bonnie Denully, who is the accompanist, calls my wife and says, is Bonnie in here? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> calls my wife and says, you must rescue him. Because it's ninth grade general choir. This is like the lowest of the low class you could possibly have. There's things flying around the room. It's just, you know, it's first year teacher. It's just not good. And here's my very quiet son. Because when we said, you got to sing in choir, he says, no, I don't want to sing choir. I go, why not? He goes, it's not natural for human beings to sing. <laughs> and you know, this Erase is hilarious because he grew up in our house. And there's just singing all day long in the house. And Teresa playing the piano. And there's music all day long everywhere. And Sarah loves it, you know, and Teresa's awesome. It's great. And I barely carry it to him, but I can carry it to him. So, they, uh, so he's doing that. So we sent him in that. And after two days, so. He goes and they, um, they get him a tryout with mail order, which is the boys' group. It's a little notch above. And he, she, after like four notes, she says, you're in. You know, because the guy has like perfect pitch. He's one of those guys that can say, well, here's a B flat. You know, that kind of thing. Um, he would correct his mother after a while. <laughs> Erase that? No, it's, it's true. No, she, no, I'm there. Oh, yeah, he'll do it. Oh. <laughs> um, so I don't actually know why I'm telling you this story. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and now here's my son, who loves, I mean, he just loves to sing, and he's good. He's good at it. Yes. So he plays in bands and does all that. So it's kind of a miracle that that happened. But what I'm telling you is he would not share his faith any other way. And that's how he shares his faith. And he, I'll tell you what, you look at my wife when she's up there at the keyboard. That woman worships in song. Yes, she does. She, and Jared is a great blessing. Yes. Jared worships. I'm just so grateful of that leadership that he has. But when my wife's in choir sometimes, and I watch her, and I just I lose it bad because she's worshiping in leading the choir. And so I always think of those things, communion of saints and a taste of the heavenly banquet. And so it's why we always encourage people to sing. So I'll tell you one other story. Sorry, I'm getting personal now. So my mother was horrible. She could not carry a tune in a bucket. And she loved to sing. That's why we sat in the second row. So she said that. I'm sitting in the second row. Nobody can hear me except the pastor. And so she sit there. She sing her guts out. And she was horrible. It was horrible. And her sisters, too, the, her whole side of the family couldn't do it on my dad's side. They were gifted singers. So when she was in the hospital with cancer, she died at 62. I'm almost getting close to her age when she passed away. And um, so one of the nurses was from her church, from the church that they went to in Phoenix. And so she was the night nurse. And she said, I would, and she told us over the months, because we went down there every month for a little bit, and as she was 
uh, dying, and she said, uh, yeah, I just, we have hymnals in here, we just sing. And she said, boy, your mom's horrible. <laughs> she says, so I just try to sing a little louder, and she doesn't care, she just sings louder. Yeah. Yeah. And so she says, and all night long we hear her singing. And, and the night, noise. so this is cool, because the night she died, she came in and she said to me, um, I heard this, <laughs> it was perfect, it was, I just heard this beautiful voice coming down the hallway. And she said, I wondered who it was. And I went in there, and it was your mother who was on pitch and perfect, singing perfectly. And she said, and then two hours later, she had, she had passed. And so I know where she is, and I know what she's doing, because she's finally getting to sing in the choir. <laughs> so they're letting her sing in the choir. Okay, that's enough of that. Brad, you had something you want to say? Oh, I was just going to say that uh, I know that singing for some men is a wonderful way to humble yourself. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we don't have good voices, and, and you know, we're module, and to bring us off the street and into the <laughs> church, and then here we are singing praises to our Savior, yeah, yeah. is very humble. Yeah, that's, you got a point, and, Brad. And it, it's wonderful for Yeah, you got a point. Yeah, no, I thanks. It's a neat way to see. It's a neat way. People's worship language is all different. For some people, it's quiet meditation. For some people, it's raising their hands and clapping. And others, it's song. Others, it's thought. Thinking through a neat thought. Jim has another really excellent sermon today. Last week just moved me significantly. This week, it's dynamite again. That's really good. And so I just, and I sit there and I'm just moved because, you know what I'm always looking for in a sermon? Tell me something I ain't heard before in a way that I haven't heard it, really. It's kind of what it is. Give me a way to go, hmm. And that's been, it's just been brilliant. So I really appreciate it. Okay, sorry. I digressed ter terribly there for a while. Um, so here we are in Philippi. So they're singing hymns uh, to God. There was a violent earthquake at the, we're verse 26. Uh, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. So that's very specific, isn't it? Yep. So again, you can imagine in your mind, right? So imagine the shackles around a person's hands that they just kind of boop. Or you can imagine that the walls fell down, and therefore their chains were not tied to anything anymore. We don't know. What we know is they were effectively freed, right? So they were in, so get the metaphors here. They were imprisoned and they are freed. God does uses this metaphor often. Egypt, right? Bondage and slavery. It's part of the Israel narrative of freedom and salvation. And so the question here becomes who is in fact truly enslaved? Who is in fact in prison? Who is in fact in darkness? And then who is in fact in light? And who in fact is experiencing freedom? So everybody's chains came out. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. That's the amazing thing, that the other prisoners didn't just boogie. Right? I mean, they knew. In other words, it says to you, they knew they were standing in the presence of supernatural. Whether it was Yahweh or divine or they don't know, but something, something made them uh, stand in awe or stay. 
The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell. And don't think there are hundreds of people, okay? In this jail, there's probably Paul and Silas and three others. That's probably what it is. And mostly drunken and disorderly, probably. <laughs> right? I mean, probably. Just, yeah. think the, just think of the drunk tanker, the holding cell, right, you know, in the local jail. It's that kind of thing. These are not, this is not the women's prison up the hill. The jailer called for lights, rushed, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's always the question, isn't it? And boy, do we answer it weird. Because <laughs> what do you expect to hear? What must I do to be saved? Well, be, do a good person, be a good person, um, you know, give to the needy, become a person of integrity, stop lying. Oh, by the way, here's 10, ten commandments. You do, do, do those. That's not what we get, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, this is significant. We could take weeks looking at this because this becomes this whole action. And then, well, let's keep going. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. So now they've moved out of the prison, right? Now they, they're guests at the jailer's home. At that hour, and it might have been attached, by the way. Okay, might very well have been attached. Probably so. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This is just such a wonderful passage that we love in, in that we see this happen again and again. You have Cornelius with Peter. You have Lydia just days before. You have the jailer at Philippi. Do you, do you, there's a common theme here that in America we miss or, or we don't hold it as highly as I, we're so independent. Everything is about me and Jesus. It's about my personal relate. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Right? You know, that's always kind of the modern American Christianity question. Do you have a, have you made a personal decision for Jesus Christ? You never see that here. I mean never. What you see is, this is my family. Can they join? Can they be part? This is my whole family. Because I'm in charge of this family, and God has made them my responsibility. And so, I, and so this is why I, I, I say to parents a lot, I go, boy, be parent as long as you can be it. As long as you're able to be it, please be parent. Because we find parents giving kids huge life decisions into their into their hands when their frontal cortex ain't half formed <laughs> and they have just not lived and they just don't know i mean i taught sophomores uh in high school for seven years and i used to laugh about this because they gave me brief moments of boy these guys are really smart and really mature but about 90 percent of the time it was like holy cow <laughs> is this what we're counting on <laughs> but they were 10th graders <laughs> Right? What do, you, what do you think? And so you don't treat them like infants or children. You speak to them as adults. You speak to them. But, you, you know, so parents, please, and, and kids, those of you, because there's some of you here, please know how much your parents love you, and they are not trying to control you. It's not about control, right? So anyway, this is the picture in the New Testament over and over and over, is it's the household of faith. The household of faith. 
Lydia brings her whole home because she says, I have found this glorious, wondrous. They have, they have counted me a believer in the Lord. And they have honored me that in this house, the word of God will be preached and people will know the grace of God. And so my whole family is honored and thrilled to be recipients of the grace of God. So you get it with Cornelius, Roman soldier, Lydia, a God-fearing Greek woman, the jailer in Philippi, a Roman, essentially, soldier, and his whole family. Isn't that fascinating? And so they come together. It's just like on January 5th, I am going to be so excited that my kids are saying to me, because I happen to be their pastor, will you take your grandson and pour out the gifts of God on him? And my answer is, Yes. Nothing could stop. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, I mean, it's just such a blessing. So really, I just say this again and again to parents. Be parent as long as you can be, because God has entrusted those kids to you, right? He's entrusted. Now, there comes a point, right? There comes a point where now you become advisor, and you only give it like if it's asked. <laughs> You guys do whatever you want. I, I'm, not, I'm not pretending to be expert there. But I am telling you the biblical testimony when kids are minors, when they're little. And when I say little, I mean up through about 14, 15, 16, 17, that age. Because it's almost like, hey, until you're out of the house, this is our house. It's not your house. Our house. Our roof, our house. You know? And so we love you. So that's what we're doing. Anyway, sorry, I'm doing some lecturing. Okay, yes, sir. Rochelle and I had an interesting experience recently, and this testimony that we've seen here kind of brought that to mind. We were at Arby's, where they have the meat. And, uh, <laughs> Please erase that from the podcast. It's an endorsement. <laughs> endorsement. Yeah, he's getting 10 bucks for it. A man walked in, and I would say he was maybe my age in his 70s, um, well dressed, or clean, cleanly dressed, walked in and stood by the doorway, and he took in the whole house. Well, my antenna went up immediately. I wanted to know why he's taking in the whole house. And then he made a statement, and I have to paraphrase it because I, I didn't, it didn't register at first, his witnessing. He was witnessing for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the true church with a living, a living prophet. And the other interesting thing about it, I'd never seen that before. I've seen corner evangelists. Uh, but the, the thing that struck me even more peculiar was his countenance was of anger. Mm. It was of attack. Not like the street evangelists I remember from Los Angeles, where they're almost pleading with you, listen to God's word. Mm. This was a challenge. He was challenging everybody there to believe what he was saying about his living prophet. Mm. I've, I've never seen that. I've never seen. really white hair? Yeah, he did. I, I ran into him walking into Costco last Sunday or the Sunday before. He's walking out of Costco and basically also um, preaching about keeping the Sabbath day holy on Sunday, you know, because I'm walking into Costco to shop, so. <laughs> <laughs> and get lunch! Yes. And get lunch. Yeah. Oh, I don't the buck 50 hot dogs. Buck 50! Do you still eat their hot dogs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look at me. <laughs> Does it look like I still eat their hot dogs? You yes, didn't get that manly physique by eating the wrong stuff. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, that guy the one thing you might want to mention here is these households were probably, I mean, we think nuclear families is another error we make, right, in yep. terms of 20. So when it says a whole household and he's the jailer, which in that town would have been fairly significant, mm -hmm. it's probably 
cousins, nephews, nieces, mm -hmm. and so this is large. This isn't just well, a nuclear family. And servants. Right, exactly. And servants. And then the other part of this, too, that's interesting is this almost, without question, would have involved small children also. We believe so, And yeah. so that's another one. Now, it's not, you know, it's not explicit, but anything culturally at this time, you would have had Lucas, my three-year-old, or people around that age or younger, also being baptized. Right. So that's uh, that's often left out. But I mean, if it's when people presume that it's only like you know believers' baptism or whatever, when they read these passages, they're assuming 20th century nuclear family American sort of thinking, kind of the same sort of thing you're talking about. When here, where it's a very corporate communal culture, there's no rights of privacy. There's no, you know, what I'm saying all right. these sort of things. And so these households, I mean, like so him and they had lots of kids, right? right. At this point, I mean, when it's the whole household, it's 20 people. Plus, right. you know, it, it very easily. Right. Well, and even if it's just nuclear family, even if it is that, it, but culturally we know right. almost certainly not. Right. Um, but but even if it was, it still probably, it believes, it, it involves people who are not right. yet adult. Correct. There's yeah. a tag to my observation I wanted to share with you, that it goes to our lesson. In the lesson, we see these men who have been thrown in jail, they should be fearful. If they were normal citizens, they're thrown in here because that means they're going to die eventually, if not tortured first. They're not fearful. They're praising God. The other people in there, whether it's just their guard or whatever, they're fearful for what might happen if these guys escape. Contrast that with the countenance of this man who did this thing in the restaurant the other day. Whose gospel did I receive? Whose message was clear to me? Who's, who spoke to my heart? Certainly not that man who I'm supposing he did it with the best of intentions, but this here where they're in prison waiting to die and they're praising God. Right. Well, and, and their situation is, is difficult. Please know, forgive me for correcting you, it's probably more like the drunk tank. Oh, no, I guess it is I get that. they're on death row. I never, when right. I worked in the jail, I never heard anybody singing praises. <laughs> Fair enough. I heard some songs, but it was none of that. <laughs> and you heard things that rhymed? Oh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> Usually at my expense. Yeah. No, anyway, at, um, it, it is always challenging. My encouragement to you, whenever those moments come, like, you know, I, like I've told this to you before, the, the LDS missionaries have never once knocked on our door. We've lived in two homes and never once knocked. So I'm, because I keep longing for the opportunity to simply say, I want to hear about your families and please come in and where are you from? Because guy, I had finally had a shot at it because I keep waiting for these chances and I'll kind of try to start a conversation here and there with Elder, you know, Jonas and whoever. And I uh, had one at the at Subway on the day it was snowing like crazy, and so it was real quiet. And the guy just said, and so we struck up a conversation. I found out he's from Jacksonville, Florida. And I said, so why do they send LDS missionaries from Florida to Pocatello? <laughs> I said, you do know it's like 60% Mormon here, right? And so we just had this great conversation. And I just said, you know what? I want to pray for you because I want to be able to pray for you to know the, the, the joy that I know. That's what I'm going to be praying for because <laughs> I've, no, I've got some... We've got some really cool gifts, yeah. and we're blessed with it. I'm just longing for that. But I want to pray for your family and, you know, encourage you to be safe, you know. And anyway. We always do. But that's, that. a, that's what I encourage you to do when those situations come where it's weird because I think the devil loves to use those things to put us at odds rather than to put us in the way, you know, to, to encourage and so forth. So anyway, but those are awkward, and there is a contrast with what we're talking about. And parents, you, and about three minutes, you have to go get your kid from the birthday party for Jesus, okay? We need to make sure that happens. So this is what I wanted to look at. What they then do is, right, so then it's, um, he's at their house, they're all baptized. Verse 35, when it was daylight, 
Then the magistrates go to the jailer with the order, release those men. <laughs> the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you be released. Now, why did that happen? They found out they were Romans. Uh huh. They found out. <laughs> Paul said to the officers, "They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we were Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out." So this is always interesting. Is Paul looking for a pound of flesh? You know, some we have to remember. Paul is also not. Paul is also human. If you read Paul carefully, there, there are any number of moments where he has a little bit of arrogance that comes through, a little bit of self-pity every once in a while, a little bit of, I know better than anyone else. A he little human? Yeah, so he's human. Do you get what I'm saying? Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to disparage Paul's character. We use, we, Lutherans love to have these conversations about Luther, too. I mean, here's a dude who probably was manic depressive. <laughs> he might have been bipolar. He might have suffered from clinical depression. Um, but he, uh, but are we thankful for how God uses sinners like us, all of us, right? So I find him very human. The neat thing is, whether he meant it for good or for ill, and we do going to put the best construction on, on this, and I'm going to guess that Paul said, I want a little bit more public hearing on this because I'm going to come past this way again. So I don't want to be known as the criminal who got shuffled off quietly in the night. I do want you to exonerate us so that our message might yet be received and we can show up back, we can show back up here again and be received. You get what I'm saying? That's what I think he's really after. Not to publicly embarrass these guys. I know it's off subject, but when, when uh, Sam had a rotary meeting and we had one of our LDS guys praying and we finished with the name of Jesus, mm -hmm. so I pray to the same Jesus. Oh, Jack. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you the short answer. Please, no one go quote me. No. Doctrinally. I have no idea if who Sam is praying to is the same Jesus we are. I don't know. If he's adhering to his church's doctrine, then the answer is no. But I cannot read the heart of any human. I am absolutely convinced that some of my Mormon neighbors are going to be, be in heaven, not because they're Mormon. You all need to hear me. I've had people give me grief when I say this. Please hear us. They don't go because they're Mormon. They go because they have tr put their trust solely and completely in Jesus Christ, who he alone can save them, only. And the only reason he can save them because he's fully God and fully, God, fully man. I mean, the only reason Jesus can completely save you is because he is fully divine, fully human, sent by his God's own son, second member of the Trinity. I mean, you please understand that, right? This is basic doctrine. That's the only reason. So, But the answer is no. That's a different Jesus that their doctrine says. You know, Lucifer's brother, he's a, he's a created being. He is not fully divine. He does not fully save. Now I'm giving you the, the doctrine pieces. That's exactly what they say, those <coughs> things that are in their doctrine. But I know LDS people who I, in my heart, I am so hopeful, and I believe that they adore Jesus Christ as their only hope. And whether they get all the doctrine right and say it all right, I don't know. I don't know. But if you, I'm telling you what, you stand before God when he calls you home, when he calls you, and you stand before him, and if, if our answer to him is, my only hope 
was your son, our Savior Jesus Christ. He was my only hope. Then he says, welcome home. We can make it very complicated. I mean, how does Jesus say? How are we to be saved? Is it John 5 or John 6? I forget where it is. Believe in the one God sent. I put all my trust in him who he sent. And so we, we should never make it more complicated. It's the joy of Christmas and Easter, you guys. When we preach on these, it's the joy of these seasons because all we can do to Christmas and Easter is screw it up, pastors. And so leave it alone and say what God has said. I mean, the rest of the year, we're going to expound and pontificate beautifully for you. But on Christmas and Easter, we should let that be.